from your affiliation with the crypto crew. Could you speak about that for a moment? We are a research group, mainly a Bigfoot research group based out of Kentucky, but we are our members are all over the country. So, and we do we do a little bit of work in paranormal, but mostly we like to research Bigfoot. That's our big thing, but we're interested in all aspects of cryptozoology. So, we do a lot of stuff. Yes, I've been keeping up with y'all for for quite some time, as you well know. And I'm very uh, much a fan of, of what y'all are all about. Uh, y'all you. really have been representing well in the community for, for many years now. Um, We're trying. Well, and you got a lot of new stuff that you've kind of been involved with. And without divulging any secrets or anything, can you tell us about any new stuff maybe that uh, came out in the okay, last few well, weeks I've... or about them? Yeah, I've got a new project. It's called Around the Campfire, where I talk about some different things about cryptids, uh, a lot of Bigfoot stuff, a little, try to offer a little different way of thinking about things and how we do our research and kind of give people some different ideas about how Bigfoot's existence could be possible and stuff like that. So I'm trying to keep it interesting. Well, you, you certainly do uh, provoke a lot of thought with the stuff you put out there, and that's one thing I've always admired about you. I'm a big fan of the Around the Campfire little Thank mini you. series you're doing. Uh, the recent one I posted actually in the uh, MXR Facebook public group today. Uh, if somebody, anyone would like to uh, take a look at that, it was very interesting about uh, techniques Bigfoot might use to stay hidden and, and why yeah. that is so. Uh, and, and that was very interesting and, like I say, quite uh, well, thought-provoking. And, and, and you have a way with your words, and I'm really glad that you could make time and with all your busy schedule and everything you got going on Come join us here at Monster X Radio. Uh, everybody really, really loves you here on the team, and, and you really just feel like family already, and we're really, really proud to have you on board. Well, I'm honored to be here and just happy that you guys asked me to do this. It's really a great opportunity. I love it, and I'm really excited about it. Well, we're, we're, we're very happy you're here with us. And also, uh, before I bring on uh, our guest and introduce tonight's topic, I would like to touch uh, on my background a little bit for a few of uh, you that may not be familiar with myself. Uh, I am from South Carolina. Uh, I had an experience in a swamp in South Carolina in 1978 where I witnessed what I would call a swamp ape or a Bigfoot-like animal. And pretty much from that day forward, uh, this is the road I went down. Uh, I got involved in cryptozoology very much so uh, in the years following, investigated uh, things like the lizard man of Cape Horse Swamp here in South Carolina and other reports of different types of cryptids and things along the way. Kind of ended up doing some blog talk stuff here and there. So I've been around a little bit for a little while. Uh, but without further ado, I'd like to go ahead and bring in uh, tonight's topic, I'd like to talk to you tonight about the possibility. What if I told you there might be 
swimming out there in the lakes and oceans, possibly, of this planet that we share, something we thought may have died off long ago. What if plesiosaurs still swim among us? Now, that seems like quite the outrageous claim on the surface to many, but it's kind of like one of those not-so-fast type of things. Because there seems to be a little bit of evidence that might just point to the very existence of just such a thing. And when it comes to the subject of relic extant plesiosaurs, and when I ponder what the possibilities might be, the first name that pops in my mind is Mr. Scott Morris, a good friend of mine and a good friend of the show. So without further ado, may I introduce to you tonight's guest, Mr. Scott Morris. How are you, Scott? Fine, Mike. How are you? And hello, Doreen. Hi, Scott. Hey. We're doing great, and uh, we're very glad to have you join us this evening. Well, thank well, you for having me. Well, you're very welcome. And, you know, like I said, it, it seems such an outrageous claim. But first tell me exactly what is a plesiosaur? What am I talking about when I use that term? Well, you go back in time to the age of the dinosaurs, <clears throat> to the Triassic era, probably 250 million years ago. And <clears throat> as the first reptiles were evolving out of the early amphibians, the difference between an amphibian and a reptile is amphibians lay jelly eggs in the water and they go through a metamorphic stage, which is a tadpole wow. stage with gills. In other words, the larval forms live in the water, and then they eventually lose the gills and come on land. Okay, the difference between an amphibian and a reptile is reptiles evolved to have hard-shelled eggs that they could lay on land and didn't undergo a metamorphosis. Now, there's no reptiles known with gills like a fish or an amphibian. So anyway, when the first early reptiles arose, the reptiles broke off into different branches. And one branch led to the mammals. By the time you get up into the Jurassic, you've got these little hairy lizard-like animals with whiskers called synapsid reptiles, and those eventually became our ancestors. Right. There was another branch called the diapsids, and the diapsids eventually split into two different branches, the archosauromorpha and the lepidosauromorpha. Now, the lepidosauromorpha includes all the living lizards and snakes, and would also include the mosasaurs, which are very closely related to Komodo dragons and that group of lizards. The other branch, the archosauromorpha, led to the dinosaurs, the pterosaurs, and the crocodilians. Okay, down below where those two branches split were a group of primitive reptiles. It's believed that the plesiosaurs came out of those early reptiles before the split, but are thought to be closer to the lepidosauromorph line than to the archosauromorph line. 
So anyway, you had these primitive <clears throat> or basal <clears throat> reptiles called nosasaurs, which were amphibious, lizard-like animals. They basically were like a plesiosaur with a long neck but with legs with feet instead of flippers. And these reptiles went down to the river and started eating fish. And progressively over millions of years, they started going further out down the rivers into the sea. And over the millions of years, their legs turned into flippers. Flippers. And they eventually evolved into plesiosaurs. And it was the intermediate stage between the nothosaurs and the plesiosaurs called pistosauroids. And, and they had flippers, but they had other more primitive anatomical features like the nothosaurs. So if you can imagine <clears throat> something along the lines of a sea turtle with a long neck and teeth for eating fish and no shell, then that's basically what your typical long neck plesiosaur looked like. And uh, a long time ago, <clears throat> they used to... <clears throat> break the plesiosaurs down into two basic groups, plesiosaurs and pliosaurs. And the pliosaurs had bodies exactly like the long neck types, but had short necks and big heads as opposed to the long neck and the small head. But yeah, they shorter, spent, stubbier, still. Exactly. As, as time has gone on, they've learned much more about the plesiosaurs and figured out that there's actually no dividing line. In other words, between the extremely long-necked, small-headed elasmosaurs, which had super long necks, some of them had necks 20 feet long, and the big-headed pliosaurs, there's a whole group of different kinds that are intermediate that go completely across that spectrum of stages of different neck lengths and head sizes. So in other words, the old, yeah, so in other words, the old plesiosaur pliosaur classification has become invalid because there's so much convergent evolution and different right. types that are so, you know, hard to classify as just to say, well, this is a plesiosaur or a pliosaur. The line has yeah, become very blurred to the point of the whole yeah. now obsolete of that but plesiosaurs were very strange animals in that you know, they're, they have features like different kind of animals we know today, but they're not exactly like any of them. Probably the closest analog I could find would be to explain that a plesiosaur, particularly the long neck types, were essentially the reptilian version of a sea lion. They have features hmm. like sea lions Much and like also sea like lion. sea turtles, but they also have features like penguins too the way they swim through the water. It's exactly like penguins fly underwater. So now, the flipper is yeah, much used like the penguin swims, I guess. Exactly, exactly. In fact, the shape of most plesiosaur flippers was exactly like a penguin's wing. It's it is very penguins. much like a penguin's yeah. wing. It is. In fact, the paleontologist Robert Barker used to call them double penguins, and the reason he called them that is because they had two functional sets of flippers, the back set and the front set, that it looked like a double set of penguin wings. Yes, it does. Oh, I yeah. see. So mm -hmm. if you can imagine... Double penguins. 
Yeah. So <laughs> if you can imagine a rough hybrid between a, a sea lion, a weatherback sea turtle, and a penguin, that will give you sort of an idea of what a plesiosaur was like. Wow, that's an incredible description, actually, and very yeah. vivid yeah, and detailed. You know, overall, they were unique. There's no living animal that's exactly like them alive today. They had other anatomical peculiarities regarding the holes in the backbone that they don't know what the reason's for. They may have been for blood vessels. They may have been for uh, distribution of oxygen to offset the bends and diving and all sorts of stuff. But there's a lot of questions about the plesiosaurs that are still up in the air. Well, I have a stupid question about this. Go ahead, Dorian. Are we sure it was a reptile? Well, there's even debate about that. Um, the features of uh, the jaw articulation and and the hearing and various other anatomical features argue for it being a reptile. But at the same time, there's evidence now from different uh, lines of evidence that they were probably partially warm-blooded. And they, they think that they're probably their their physiological metabolism was somewhere between a leatherback turtle and a bird, somewhere in that spectrum. So you that know, puts not it into quite, question then. Not quite as advanced as they think dinosaurs were, but more advanced than a leatherback turtle. Well, I know and, the dinosaurs have come into question. You know, they've had said for years, mm-hmm. like when I was a kid, I always read books about they were giant reptiles, but. Yeah. Uh, over the well, years, the opinions have changed slip, about yeah. that. So. That's a slippery slope because some people say, nope, dinosaurs are birds and should be classified with the birds. And then they say, well, since birds are descended from dinosaurs, birds are reptiles. So, but, you know, it's it's a, apples and oranges. It's a slippery yeah. slope, you know? So, Very interesting. Yeah. One well, thing an echolocation, out, too. Well, I'm I'm very skeptical about the idea of plesiosaurs <clears throat> being able to echolocate. They would have had okay. to really gone through some radical evolution to do that because what they know from the fossil forms, the <clears throat> the construction of the ear bones was so primitive that they probably would not have been able to hear what they call ultrasounds, high frequencies such as used in echolocation. So right. based on that and the fact that there doesn't seem to be any skeletal structures on the fossil types that we know for a sonar bell and to focus a sonar pulse. You know, like like whales, they have this fatty uh, lump of fat on their forehead, which they use to focus the sound of an echolocation pulse. And it comes back and they receive it on the lower jaw. But most of the hearing of reptiles is done through the lower jaw from vibrations. Snakes are technically deaf, and the only thing they have for sound is they feel vibrations underneath them, and it comes into their jawbone. Okay. Now, you're yeah. talking about fossils. Now, yeah. if we're talking about a creature that still exists, 
supposedly. Well, yes, of course it could have possibly. evolved, and I, I expect that right. there probably has been. Right. There's room. Is that possible in your mind? Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But I'm just saying, okay. based on the right. fossil plesiosaurs that we know, looking at that, the echolocation would seem to be an unlikely ability. Right. But you okay. know, who knows what 65 million years could have done to these animals, but at the same time, you have to look at the facts on the ground and look at the anatomical constraints of what we know about them. Exactly. And try to say, well, how likely is this? Okay. Based on what we know, I think it's unlikely. But, you know, but. who knows? <laughs> I'm just giving you my opinion. Right. right. Okay, great. Well, and that is yeah. a very valid opinion, too. And I'd like to go ahead and touch on that again, Scott, while we've got the opportunity. Now, yeah. you do have uh, quite the background in paleontology. And uh, you've been uh, researching a particular entity for quite some time now. Yeah, Would I've you been like doing to go that. Ahead and talk about uh, what the basis of most of your recent research has been about over the past few years. Yeah, well, <clears throat> back in um, <clears throat> back in the 1950s. There was a Loch Ness researcher named Constance White wrote a book called More Than a Legend. It was published in 1957-1958 about the Loch Ness Monster. And she was the first to really express the idea that the Loch Ness Monsters, more than one, this is based on the assumption that they're probably is or was a population of these animals in Loch Ness to sustain, you know, the size of hundreds of years. Yeah. So anyway, her idea was that plesiosaurs somehow survived their extinctions out in the deep ocean. And roughly around 11,000, 10,000 years ago, somewhere in that area, maybe 14,000 years ago, Um, the glaciers melted, and when it did, there was all this excess water that caused flooding. And when all this excess melted ice went into the oceans, it raised sea levels. When this happened, places like Loch Ness and Lake Champlain were actually temporarily armed to the sea and became marine. (coughs) At the same time this was going on, you have to remember that that during the height of the Ice Ages, these places were buried under ice sheets a mile thick. I mean, we're talking about so much ice that it actually weighed the land down. The, The continental plates actually sank from the weight of this ice. Yeah, it's almost inconceivable when you really think about it. Yeah, okay, so when when this melting was going on, the land hadn't quite rebounded yet. In other words, it hadn't bounced back up from the loss of the weight. This took time. Still had so a low in between the time, in between the time that the ice melted and there was all this flooding going on and the land rose, these places temporarily became arms of the sea. Lake Champlain was was a marine sea called the Champlain Sea for roughly 2,000, 2,500 years before the land rose and cut it off. And there are fossils from Lake Champlain 
from that time period of beluga whales and seals that were actually living in what is now Lake Champlain at that time. In Loch Ness, they have only found marine invertebrate fossils, uh, clamshells and sea urchin spines, but they know that it was at that point in time was also marine too. There might have been a little time difference between when this happened at Lake Champlain and Loch Ness, but it was roughly in the same time period. So anyway, the idea is is that these plesiosaurs, for whatever reason, came into places like Loch Ness and Lake Champlain while they were marine, and then when the land rose, they got cut off, and there's been a small population in both places that has adapted to fresh water and managed to survive ever since. And that is well, now, the origin of these animals. Let me make sure I understand you now. What you're telling me is not only was there a big place, like well, in the case of Lake Champlain and the Champlain Sea, there was quite a large body of water, and the door, per se, was open for quite a long time. Yeah, at least 2,000 years. And And the thing about the Champlain Sea, you must realize, is that what is now Lake Champlain is 126 miles long. When this was the Champlain Sea, what is now Lake Champlain was only a small fjord of a much larger body of water that mostly covered Ontario and Quebec and Canada. I mean, it was huge. It was huge. Now, this yeah. is mostly, when you're talking about the glaciation that was involved, Scott, uh, specifically when it was completely covered, was that in the case of the Laurentide ice sheet or multiple yes. ice sheets? Yes, exactly. Well, it would have been a different ice sheet over in Scotland. <clears throat> well, yeah. I can't remember I'm... what exactly the name of the the, the ice sheet was, but it, it was right. called the, but the White more Valley in Glaciation. North but America. Was, yeah, but it was contemporary with the, what they call the Wisconsin but, Glaciation right. in North America. Yeah, all of Canada would have just been, except for a few isolated spots up toward Alaska, all of Canada was buried under ice. All of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. hard to imagine nowadays. Yeah. For, yeah. For somebody like what that. happened was when um, when all that ice came, anything that survived was driven south of the glaciers. A lot of the fish that live in Lake Champlain now and reinvaded after the ice melted came from the Mississippi River Basin. They came up the Mississippi River and crossed over the Mohawk River in New York and came down into Lake Champlain after the ice melted. There's hmm. a good chance, though, that the very same types of fish were in that region before the ice ever came, which would have been about two, three million years ago. So, in other words, they were driven out and came back. I see. Uh, yeah. And, and is it, could this type of thing happen more than one time when these ice sheets? Absolutely. They think that it happened at least three times. And there's a lot of debate about that, but, but the general consensus is that it happened at least three times. And uh, apparently the last glaciers coming through obliterated most of the record of the earliest earlier glaciations. 
Yeah, we're talking one was about wiped out the record of the previous. Exactly. So, so there's only a scanty record of the previous glaciations before the the last one. I mean, there's there's scanty records of it, but not much. Uh, anyway, so yeah, hmm. you're talking about between a time period of say two million years ago to ten thousand years ago, you're talking about a series of three different ice ages with interglacial periods in between each of them. So in other words, there's a high likelihood that there was a was one glaciation, then that melted and created one sea. Then it started again, and it probably happened again. It melted and created a different sea. And then the last time, it did it for the third time. So there's a lot of hmm. stuff about the earlier glaciations and what may have been going on during the interglacials we don't know about because the record was obliterated by these glaciers right. coming through. Yeah. So there's certainly so, a lot of room for speculation there. Sure. Well, okay. Well, anyway, uh, getting back well, to the idea of what Constance White was talking about, and Tim Dinsdale, the well-known Loch Ness researcher, really developed the idea more than she did. Getting back to this idea and thinking about this, the obvious idea that comes into the mind is that, well, if plesiosaurs did manage to survive for 65 million years past their presumed extinction, theoretically, shouldn't there be some kind of fossil evidence to support the idea? There should be, theoretically. Well, exactly. Now, um, one thing you have to realize is one one reason the paleontologists are so against this relic plesiosaur idea is the fact that if you go back and look at the history of paleontology and the understanding of the geologic column and the different uh, geologic time periods and the concepts of extinction, you find out that some of the earliest evidence building blocks of that whole idea were the discovery of plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs in the early 1800s in England. Okay. In, in other words, the discovery of these marine reptiles was a major building block for the entire concept that animals could go extinct. Okay. Which is part of the reason I believe that the paleontology community is so against, you know, having an open mind on the idea of plesiosaur survival. But that's kind was, of a side uh, issue. Kind of taken as a case closed uh, type yeah, of exactly. situation. But, yes, I mean, it's, it's just the mindset. I mean, if you look at the culture of paleontology, paleontologists normally argue like cats and dogs over the general stuff that they normally study, much yeah. less somebody coming from outside of paleontology saying, hey, you know this animal you think has been extinct for 65 million years? Maybe it's not. And this is coming from outsiders maybe, who aren't maybe, maybe it's not, right. And it's coming from yeah. an outsider, so that's even going to get more resistance. Exactly. Now. Somebody, but what do, you, what, do, what do you know what you're talking about? You're yeah, who are you? Yeah. I've been exactly. That's part of what's going on here. You know, um, which is understandable. I mean, you got to look at it, it not just from yeah. 
yeah, you got to look at it from from the whole socio political perspective Absolutely. too, because there's definitely an element of that involved in this whole controversy. So anyway, um, <clears throat> well, now, around, when you say they, they, I'm gonna stop you for a second here because like this reminds me of something else, I, and, and you know where I'm probably about to go with this. It's not always case closed. Oh, this so-and-so died out 60 million years ago, and then we start catching them off the coast of Africa. Oh, I'm yes, of course. The coelacanth. Coelacanth. Yeah. Oh, that's... Yeah. Now, wasn't that case closed, too? Uh, well, they had thought <clears throat> that the coelacanth, based on the fossils in 1938, had been extinct for 80 to 90 million years. Then... <clears throat> This ichthyologist in South Africa finds a dead one in a fish market <clears throat> and tries to preserve it and gets a hold of a well-known ichthyologist in South Africa. She sends him a drawing of what the fish looks like, hoping to get him to identify it. He writes her back and says, well, this is obviously from from – the features of the fins and the tail fin, this is a, a type of fish that's supposed to have been extinct for 80 million years, called a coelacanth. So she had trouble trying to preserve the fish, wound up having to <clears throat> throw out the internal organs and just have the skin preserved by a taxidermist. And that was the first coelacanth type specimen. And Right. Because the one that they had caught was caught was a stray that had wandered away from where the main population was. It took them 14 years to find a second one. Hmm. Okay, I didn't hear this part of the story before. Yeah, in so. 1952, they finally found a second one. And the second one had come from the Comoro Islands, which is where the, the known first population was. And they were able to get more after that. And they figured, they well, this must be the major population yeah. base. That yeah, exactly. And they figured, well, this must be the only relic population there is. And then in 1998, they discovered a second population of a different species off Indonesia. That was hmm. totally a separate group of yeah, animals. Well, yeah, well, it's the totally same genus, but, but a different species. They were different enough to be a different species from the ones right. from the Camorra. We kind of know they uh, used to run together, but they don't know more. Yeah, well, what happened was they, hmm. they, they, uh, they think that they were originally descended from the same stock, <clears throat> but what happened was India used to not be connected to Asia. There was a sea where that area was, and this was where these relic silicates had managed to hang on, and they were hanging around um, places where the continental plates meet where there was volcanism they seem to be partial to those types of environments vent type fauna places and anyway what happened was as as India was moving toward Asia it split these coelacanths into two separate populations they were separated by the movement of India coming to collide with Asia and when that happened, one group, one group went one way and yeah, one went group to went Indonesia the and the other one went to, to the Comoros, and that's why they're over millions of years have diverged into two different species. And another hmm. interesting thing is 
Another interesting thing is that since 1938, up until 1938, all the fossil coelacanths were 80 million years old. Well, that was my next question. Where were all the fossils at from the coelacanth that died 10,000 years ago or 100,000 years ago or millions years ago? Well, that's what I'm getting to here. Since 1938, there have only been two post-Cretaceous coelacanth fossils found. One is one scale from the Paleocene of Sweden, which would be about, oh, 55 million years ago. (laughs) And then there's another fish that was found in Palestine or Israel from the Miocene period. And the Miocene period is probably, oh, between 23 and 5 million years ago. So this would have been midway through the age of mammals. But that's it. You've got the one scale from wow. about 55 million years ago and then the one fish from about 20 million years ago. And that's it, period. Okay, so we're touting the coelacanth all the time, but it was really kind of precarious the way all that came about. And Yeah, um, we don't know. There could be unknown coelacanth populations different places around the world sure. that we don't know about. Right now. We haven't discovered right. yet. Yeah, exactly. Right. You don't know that. Yeah, and the fossil record, know. even though it's really all we got to go on, it's just such a small, random snapshot sometimes. It's, yeah. It's not a well, complete picture odds, by any means, obviously. The odds of, of the creation of a fossil are very low in the first place. Right. The only reason we have so many fossils now is because of the vast amount of time periods involved. You know, yeah. like we're talking multicellular large life forms have lived on this planet for about 600 million years, which mm-hmm. is a long time. That's a long time. Yeah. So and when you think about it, we fish. really don't have a lot of fossils considering how much time there's been. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We're lucky to have what we got. Right. Yeah. And I guess, like and, you and, say, I mean, the right conditions have to be present for a fossil yep. to occur, and that's kind of the key to that whole thing. And how many times do you turn around and read in the newspapers or in a a science magazine about some weird new dinosaur or some weird new marine reptile that they didn't even suspect existed has just been found? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they'll find find a bone or two and just say, you know, this doesn't match anything we got. Absolutely. There's, you know, this entire species have been, entire genus and species have been erected based on one bone fragment. Or a couple of bone fragments. Yeah. You know? In some in so, cases, very little. Indeed. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes they're mistaken. Like, I know I was reading about one case, I think it was from India, where they thought they had discovered a late surviving stegosaurus based on some fragments. And they said, no, this is not a stegosaurus, it's a plesiosaur. Mm-hmm. Now, think about that. This certainly... Uh, I mean, they're totally different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of variance and in interpretation, and the window is there for misinterpretation, and that does play into all of this sometimes. Well, yeah, yeah. So so getting back to the two post-Cretaceous coelacanth fossils, the entire fossil record of coelacanths for the last 80 million years would fit in a shoebox. Think about that. Uh, hmm. That's uh, 
And we're talking about a fish yeah. that gets five feet long, you know? Yeah, well, I've always fish. been yeah, led to believe that. Yeah, I've always been led to believe that the coelacanth was such a big deal, and it was so cut and dry that. You know, yeah. Well, it still is. And it's not looking that way. I mean, not in the way we've always thought, anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, most of the fossil record is still missing. You know. Yeah. People that that want to downplay the idea make such a big deal about it. These two fossils that have been found from the Paleocene and the Miocene. But I, I look at it like, yeah, that's not much, you know? Yeah. So exactly. anyway, it's not. Getting, getting back to the plesiosaur idea, you would think that there would be some kind of, <clears throat> you know, at least fragmentary remains laying around over the last 65 million years to suggest possibly that plesiosaurs did survive. Into exactly. the modern era. Well, I got to digging through the paleontology literature and found a whole bunch of stuff. Wow. Is, you know, uh, at this point I need to explain that there's uh, a phenomenon in geology called reworked fossils. Okay. And what this means, you know, to understand paleontology, you not only have to understand biology, which is the the anatomy and, and, and physiology of these prehistoric animals, but you also have to understand geology. In other words, you have to understand the geologic processes of the earth that create these fossils and what these geologic processes do to these fossils over time. Sure. Yeah, you know, both most of the geology time, and biology go hand in hand. In this case. In paleontology, yes. Form you have to have, have an understanding of both of them. You must have a, a, an appreciation for both. Yes, exactly. So anyway, in paleontology, there's a phenomenon called reworking of fossils. What this is talking about is fossils of older geologic age getting knocked out of their original sediments or strata and worked into younger sediments. In other words, let's say there's a place where there's strata of different ages. There's strata from the age of the dinosaurs, and on top of that, there's younger strata in the age of mammals. Let's say there's an earthquake or something, some kind of geologic upheaval. And let's say that a shark tooth that's down and the dinosaur age sediments gets knocked up into the younger mammal age sediments. That's what I'm talking about. So what you're telling me is it's not unreasonable that a fossil could get displaced into a different location and stratum. Exactly. That's what reworking is. And this is very mm-hmm. important when it comes to the discovery of, say, a dinosaur bone in strata much younger than it's supposed to be in. In other words, it doesn't automatically mean that, well, okay, dinosaurs survived 25 million years after their supposed extinction. It could mean that, but it doesn't necessarily. It it may be a reworked fossil. And most of the time, this is a legitimate phenomenon. There are even 
younger fossils that somehow get worked down into older sediment, too, which is called caving. It's, but it's the same idea, but it's coming from younger strata into older strata. Into older strata. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, usually <clears throat> when, when they find a reworked fossil, there are signs that tell the geologist and the paleontologist that it is reworked. In other words, the fossil might be all scratched up and it might be all discolored, dirty. And sometimes the original strata, the original matrix of, of, of rock that used to be earth that was around the fossil, portions of it still remain. And in some cases they can look at the stuff that's still adhering to the fossil and actually figure out that, well, it came from this place because the rock around it is the same as over here, if you follow me. Yes, I see what you're saying. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But not always. And sometimes these supposed reworked fossils don't have any um, signs of being scratched up or reworked. And you get into a slippery slope here because, you know, there have been a few finds of dinosaurs past the supposed KT event, which is the Cretaceous Tertiary Extinction event, supposedly when the the meteor hit and and caused all this havoc. You know, the meteor supposedly hit down the Yucatan Peninsula and caused all this worldwide upheaval that, that... caused the extinction of the dinosaurs. Apocalyptic, yeah. Yeah. Right. So anyway, there are a few cases where they have found dinosaur bones past that point into the Paleocene epoch, which is the geologic period right after the Cretaceous. And some of the scientists that have found these have said, we believe these are dinosaurs that survived the extinction. And in most cases, um, people that don't agree with them have come back and said, nope, those are reworked. And this has been going on for at least 25 years. Wow. Since the late 1980s. And there's a whole bunch of literature on the subject from different places. Um, How does it come to an end? (laughs) Well, basically, (laughs) basically the argument that the critics of the idea of dinosaur survival have said is it, it has said that if you find a complete dinosaur skeleton articulated in the ground in younger sediments, we'll believe it. And it can be okay. conclusively shown that it's not reworked, then fine, we will we will accept it. But until that time we, we will refuse to accept it. You know? Mm. In other words, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Yes. Which is, you know, understandable. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, there are occasional cases that I can point to where what were originally thought to be reworked fossils turned out not to be. Hmm. Now, let me go on my computer here and find this particular thing I'm looking for, if you'll give me a minute here. Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead and take your time, Scott. I think that's fascinating that it's so much, even within the community of paleontology, there seems to be a lot of different point of views and a lot of things is 
it's not exactly yeah. in black and white. And there's a little exactly. bit of hand fighting I mean, and different ideas. There's a lot of, lot of modern paleontology is speculation. It's informed speculation, but it's still speculation. Perhaps not so much as cryptozoology, which is, you know, sauce for the goose, I guess, you know. But anyway, um, here's a case. <laughs> this is in Romania. I'm just going to read this from a book. It's called Fossils of the Carpathian Region. Okay, hang on. Let me get it blown up here so I can see it. Take a second here. All right, it says, This spectacular locality is called Rapa Rosi because of the reddish color of the rocks and is located two kilometers north of the city of Sebaz. The thick, pebbly, and sandy series seen here was deposited in a continental en- environment and was long regarded as Oligocene or even Miocene in age. Indeed, the reptile bones that occur in this succession were thought to have been reworked, that is, later transported into the sediment as pebbles. Most recent finds, including dinosaur footprints, show that the ma- majority of this succession was in fact laid down during the Maastrichtian latest Cretaceous, and that the numerous dinosaur, crocodile, and pterosaur remains found here are not reworked but preserved in situ. So anyway, they thought that these the sediments in Romania were Oligocene or Miocene, which would have been uh, 30 to 20 million years ago, and that the occasional dinosaur bones that were found in it were reworked from other sediments. Then they found so much Cretaceous stuff, they realized that, no, this is not Oligocene, this is Cretaceous, and that these fossils aren't reworked. So there's a mm. concrete example of what I'm talking about. Yeah, mm. it's an absolute concrete example of what the very thing you were just describing. Yeah, exactly. And then there's these um, shark teeth from uh, Wyoming. Let me find that. It's the same type of thing where even amongst colleagues, there's some debate about the fine nuances of the reworking and the redistribution that can occur like that. I can see where that would certainly cloud the picture a little bit. Hmm. Well, the most latest controversy has been about a hadrosaur bone from New Mexico. There's been a lot of controversy about the age of that. And that was from 2011 to 2012. Hmm. Well, you know, and it doesn't seem to just be the fossil evidence that's in play here. I mean, also... There, there's been the case where there's been some carcasses uh, or alleged carcasses that, that washed up that were pretty interesting to say the least here and there. Is yeah, there one case that really uh, got your attention? And I'm gonna mispronounce this. Is the the Maru carcass? Yep, I was gonna talk about that. Um, <clears throat> the fishing trawler, Japanese fishing trawler. Yep, and, yep, yep. Uh, off the Coast Museum in 1977, I believe it was. Yes, it was. Uh, uh, April 1977. 
They collected something that from one of the flippers very, yeah, and photographed it and measured it, and then they threw it back overboard because it was rotten. With the intention <laughs> of sending rotten, another yeah. ship back to get it, and they went back to look for it and couldn't find it again. Mm. Well, Chemical it's certainly one of the more uh, the controversial and interesting though. examples of yeah. so-called carcasses that may fit the bill, so to speak. Yeah. Fill the bill. Uh, that one Well, one reason... Oh, go ahead. No, you go right ahead, Scott. Well, I was going to say, one reason that the Zuyo Maru carcass is so controversial is that there's a whole series of carcasses of similar appearance that have washed up different places around the globe, and most of them had turned out to be mutilated basking shark carcasses. Yeah, this has been proven on more than one occasion. Um, and what happens is the basking shark is a big, giant, 30-foot-long, filter-feeding shark with really big jaws and, and gill arches. It swims through the water like a baleen whale, siphoning shrimp and other planktonic organisms. It, it, it sucks these into its mouth, and it catches these microscopic organisms with these gill rakers around its gills and it's a filter feeder. So anyway, what happens is, you know, the the shark skeleton is made out of cartilage and mm-hmm. is very loosely held together and the jaws of the shark are actually a separate piece from the cranium. So when the a shark dies and the carcass begins to rot, particularly with basking sharks, is that the jaws completely fall off the carcass. Mm. So you've got this tiny little cranium that was attached to these huge jaws. Then suddenly those jaws fall off, and what you've got is this tiny little cranium that looks like a turtle skull missing a, a lower jaw, and this long set of vertebrae going back to where the front fins are. Okay. It gives it gives the misleading impression of an animal with a long neck and a small turtle-like head with no lower jaw. Okay. And a pair of eye sockets. So this has happened on more than one occasion. And... When the people find these rotten carcasses on the beach, they look at it and say, well, it's got a long neck and a small snake or Mm -hmm. turtle-like head, and it looks like a plesiosaur. And it does. It's amazing the resemblance. But usually what happens is is, is some marine biologist will take the skull, the cranium, or some of the backbone back to a laboratory and compare it with examples of basking shark craniums and basking shark vertebrae and figure out, well, this is a basking shark. Okay. And over the last yeah, over the last over the last ten years they've actually come down to using uh DNA. Yeah. Samples, and have completely on some of them have completely nailed it. One hundred percent. Yep, this is Yeah, that was my next shark. question. If DNA evidence is helping a little bit more with yeah, yeah. Identifying so, them. Most of the cases, like the Zuyo Marie carcass, there's been somebody around to to conclusively identify what it was. 
Mm-hmm. Now, right. the problem with the Zio Maru carcass is, is that the carcass wasn't brought back to be examined in a laboratory. In other words, and you that, can't. Oh, the only thing you've got to work with about the, the skull or, or the backbones or any of that are the photographs. And yeah. the eyewitness testimony of the crew that were on this ship, the measurements that they took of the various anatomical features on the ship before they threw it overboard, and the tissue samples. Hmm. The tissue samples were uh, subjected to biochemical comparisons with similar sharks, uh, similar fibers found in the fins of sharks. And they found out that it was like maybe a 96% identical comparison to the fibers from a basking shark fin. So that's one reason that people are strongly inclined to think that the Zio Maru carcass exactly. was, in fact, another basking shark. But okay. related to that whole biochemical analysis, there was <clears throat> a problem related to the chemical preservative that the fibers were put into on board the ship. They were put into a jar or container with a solution called sodium hypochlorite, which I, I really don't know oh, that much wow. about it. But the thing is, um, they, they found out that the fibers were different on the initial test from the basking shark fibers. There was, was a, a marked difference. So they said, well, maybe it's because of the chemical preservative they were put into. So they did a second test. They took the basking shark fibers and put them into the sodium hypochlorite and did the test again. When they did oh. that, there was more resemblance. It was a 96% um, well, yeah. the same. But the okay. thing is... the same ringer, too. Yeah, yeah. But the thing yeah. is... You've got to say, well, okay, they they kind of they kind of fixed it with this chemical. So you can look at it one way, says yeah, they're probably right, and in other ways you can say, well, there's kind of jittery pokery going on here. So I don't know. Wow. But the interesting thing is that I, through my own research, has found out that there was a paper written in 1841 describing similar type fibers in an exceptionally preserved ichthyosaur fossil, which was a reptile that is distantly related to the plesiosaurs. And we don't know what the chemical content of those fossilized fibers are. So, you know, this opens up all kind of questions. Now, most of the scientists that studied the Zio Maru carcass were convinced that it was at least, if not a basking shark, was a shark of some kind. There was a minority of maybe six scientists that were open-minded and said, no, we don't think this is a shark, and it might be a reptile, and it might be a plesiosaur. But they were far hmm. in the minority. So the, the, best, the best thing I can say about the Zio Maru carcass is that most of the scientists that have looked at the evidence think that it was a basking shark, but there was a small minority that said, no, we think this is something else and it might be a plesiosaur. So that's that's as close as I can get to a final answer for you. Right. We're less than mm-hmm. definitive on that. But it's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Now, as we move into 
the age of photography and whatnot, uh, since we've been hanging around recently here, there's been a few interesting photographs and videos along the way. Is there one piece of evidence or maybe a couple pieces that really stand out to you as being maybe quite significant in comparison to others? Well, yeah. Um, when people <clears throat> point to the Loch Ness Monster, the strongest evidence, and this is not without controversy, and there, there's a whole <clears throat> library of literature arguing against the authenticity of this evidence as being evidence for some kind of unknown animal. But what is generally considered to be the two strongest groups of evidence for the Loch Ness Monster are Tim Dinsdale's 1960 film of a large hump moving across Loch Ness and the underwater photographs that were taken in the 1970s by an American group of scientists called the Academy of Applied Scientists. Uh, Academy of Applied Science. I'm glad this you includes, that. Yeah, this this includes the famous flipper photographs yeah. and the underwater photograph that looks like the front part of a plesiosaur with a body, a long neck, and a pair of flippers. It certainly There's, does. Uh, yeah, now, there was so. quite a bit of controversy on the, quote, the flipper picture, unquote, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. about some enhancements and pre- yeah. and post-enhancement and that type of thing. Can you touch on that a little bit, Paul? Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so the original photographs were rather blurry. And <clears throat> the scientists, uh, most of the people from the Academy of Applied Science, were associated with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And <clears throat> through some of their connections, they were able to use the <clears throat> photographic computer enhancement techniques used by NASA at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. Normally what these computer photographic en- enhancement techniques were used for were from photographs from space, from other planets. And... Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think. It's what is it called? Very advanced technology. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, at any rate, I'm quite sure. When you start talking JPL, you're pretty much on the cut. Yeah. Edge. So anyway, I'm trying to think of, of the term. It's right on the tip of my tongue of this computer photographic process. You'll have to excuse me. I'm having a brain fart here. Oh, that's quite all right. You're way above my head anyway. I know what the JPL um, is. After that, I just know there's a bunch of people that's a lot smarter than I am. Yeah. So anyway, without without getting too deep into this, it really doesn't matter what it's called. But anyway, the process that it does is that the computer breaks an image down into pixels. And based on comparison with the adjacent pixels, it cleans up, somehow it cleans up the the image. For each little by pixel, each pixel at a time. Yeah, right. yeah. It, yeah. It's, a, it's a digital way, that the, it's a program that cleans up the image. And they've used it thousands of times for photographs from outer space, and nobody had any controversy about it because 
oh, no, this is the Loch Ness Monster. It's a whole different ball game. Uh-huh. So anyway, <clears throat> they got a graduate student. <clears throat> uh, what is his name? He's a geol- geologist. Um, oh, shit. Hang on. Let me Give me a minute to go in my files here, will you? Yes, sir. You go right ahead. Yeah, right, I mean, Alan Gillespie, yep. and now he's he's a professor of Washington State, some kind of college out in Washington State. Anyway, if you've seen the the um, the Monster Quest episode about the Loch Ness monster, he's on it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So anyway. Okay. Yeah. I might so even anyway, know you're talking about. I can't call his name. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, Alan, they got him Alan. to take the the 1972 underwater photographs to the JPL laboratory and computer enhance them. And when he did, he did several different types of enhancement programs on them, which created different images based on different types of photographic filters, right? Right. So in other words, he ran these through different programs to bring out different aspects of the original image. Well, we're talking and about produce... contrast and exposures and exactly, that kind of thing. yeah. Okay, now bear that in mind. You've got like three or four different versions of this one image. Right. Now another photographic expert who developed the cameras that initially took the photographs was a guy named Charlie Wyckoff. Once Gillespie was done with his enhancements, he gave those over to Charlie Wyckoff. Charlie Wyckoff took all the different enhancements and sandwiched them together into one image, and that is the final flipper image. Is okay. a composite of all those different enhancements uh, that Gillespie see, did. Actually, a composite of the, all of the multiple images that were made during exactly. That time. But now, the thing is, if you go back and look at the original unenhanced image, the original raw image of the famous first flipper image, you can actually see the flipper outline in the original unenhanced image. So, okay. based on that... You still see that outline. And that's what I was going yeah. to get at. I still second, see it anyway. The second picture... It's much more ambiguous. There's actually two flipper photographs, and the second one is in a different position. But if you go back and look at the original unenhanced version of the second photograph, it's much more difficult to see how they got that image from the original image. But if you look at the original, the first famous flipper photograph, you can actually see the flipper outline in the original photograph. You can but now critics, now critics of this whole thing say that what you're looking at in the original unenhanced image is the bed of the lock with a ridge running down the middle of it, and that it just happens to coincidentally it look like a prehistoric flipper. if you will. So, you know, you beauty is in the eye of the beholder. If if you want to see a prehistoric flipper in it. You can see a plesiosaur flipper in it. Sure. If you don't want to see a plesiosaur flipper in it, well, you can just dismiss it and say, oh, oh, that's a pig. That could be anything, you know? 
Right. So what it, does that it, say um, about it, all it, of it, the evidence? <clears throat> well, yeah, you know, if, if you don't want to believe in something bad enough, you can just go all of it, Carter. If you want to see it, you see it. I, I mean, I see that. I'm kind of the objective, but when I look at the very original, when I first saw it, I said, I see a flipper. Yeah. And it's got very distinctive penguin yeah, it looks like a pussy. That's what I thought too. Uh-huh. What it looks like, and it's one of the the main <clears throat> one of the main uh, features of the evidence that people point to that that think that it's a police or say, yeah, look at that flipper. That looks like a police source flipper. Yeah, so at least it looks like a penguin. <laughs> so anyway, uh, getting back to the controversy, probably around 1983, 1984. A couple of guys that were sonar experts from Boston had gone to Loch Ness and had no luck with with their own sophisticated sonar equipment. So they kind of had sour grapes and decided to try to debunk the Academy of Applied Science evidence and came up with a claim that that the final flipper photographs had been uh, retouched, had been painted. Airbrush, airbrush, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot of controversy about those claims. Personally, I don't think that's the case, but you know, there are people out we there. We may that never that. know, and at best, yeah, it, 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 you know, we're talking about something that's going to be inconclusive in the end. Yeah, but it's well, very compelling to me uh, <laughs> as an individual. Well, yeah. you know, you look, you look at that stuff. You look at the underwater pictures from from Loch Ness, and you look at the Zia Maru carcass pictures, you know, and you look at Mm -hmm. fossil plesiosaur skeletons, you can see, you know, it's all very interesting, but, you know, there's a lot of holes in it at the same time. You know, the the evidence is very vulnerable from attack. Yes, it is. And people that don't want to take it seriously... <clears throat> will knock you to the ground out of it. Yes. But that's just part of the, you know, if you're going to, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen, you know? That's right. It comes um, with the territory. And yeah. So basically, the basically, it's just like uh, research of any other cryptid, you're going to have to throw a body on the table before they're yeah. going to believe it. Yeah. And, and, and you've got, and you had like, five or six professional biologists who publicly said that we think that the Zia Maru carcass might be a reptile and it's not a yeah. shark. So what are, you, what are you supposed to make of that? Yeah. Well, They've that speaks to me a little bit. That, you know? Those people were at least willing to put their career on the line yeah. to come out publicly. Well, yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, to make a long story short, without getting bogged down into details... Getting back to this reworked fossil idea, digging through the paleontology literature, and um, my friend Bill Drennan, who I'm sure you've heard of, has also done some work on this too. I went through digging through all the paleontological literature on plesiosaurs that I could find, and I found like maybe 10, 20 cases of out of place plesiosaur bones, and I found two from the Ice Age, hmm. which would have been around the time that theoretically these right. relic plesiosaurs would have come into these 
places like that's when the door was open. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, well, there you go. And you put that together with the evidence from Loch Ness and Lake Champlain and the Zio Maru carcass, and there are a lot of historical uh, tribal art and ancient artworks of yes. creatures that look like plesiosaurs on top of that. Very true. Well, now, it's not you just know. contained to, to just two or three locations. We're talking about uh, like in Japan, uh, Caddy. Yep. You, you got yep. a sure. of animals, do we not, from just all over the globe, basically. Yeah, well, well, the thing is, some of those animals don't sound like plesiosaurs. They sound like something else. But a great many of them do sound like plesiosaurs, so... Right. Now, in some cases, some descriptions tend to fit maybe a large eel or some other type of animal. Exactly. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's the possibility that, that this whole plesiosaur idea may not be right. And there's some pretty good alternative theories that I give credence to, like the ideas of giant eels and giant yeah. amphibians. Or, you know, or I mean, I'm not going to mine on this. Or, or what have you. Yeah. Uh, but I'm right. saying, you know, underwater on, formations causing odd wakes and things like that. I mean, yeah, well, there's so many things that come into play. Those things are real phenomena. But I yeah. find it hard to believe that you can rest the whole case on people being mistaken all the time. Right. Otherwise, otherwise, you'd be getting reports from from everywhere. Right. You know, I mean, people see ducks swimming on the lake all the time. Yeah, and ninety percent of lakes you have ducks and waves. You don't get reports of of plesiosaurs, you know. Right now, um, when you go to the eel theory and all that, now there's a particular photograph taken by Sandra Mann. Yeah, it's somewhat notable and well known. And when I look at that, I'm not looking at a eel in that. I'm just saying. You know, I don't know what that is, but it's not a exactly. But yeah. it looks like a plesiosaur to me. But that's it looks an awful lot like a plesiosaur. Now, yeah. I've tried to wrap my head, and I'm sure Doreen has as well, around, hey, is that just a piece of stripwood? You know, logs and limbs on them look funny, floating in the water. Yeah. Well, you know, nobody knows. Not even, not even Sandra Manzi. She saw it and snapped a picture. She thinks and it she was, was an there, animal. And she don't I know, know I know her. 100%. Right. I know the you know lady. her well. Yeah. You, you yeah. Okay. I sent you a picture of me and her together. You sure I did. I was at her house. And I knew who that summer. was as soon as I seen that name because that photograph. Yeah. So anyway, what's interesting yeah. is is that she herself thinks that the animal that she saw was a zygodon, which is the prehistoric snake like <laughs> whale. Right. But you know, that's, huh. I mean, okay. she's entitled. She saw it, so she's entitled to her that's opinion. That's how she but, saw it. Yeah. Now, cold, when I look at that picture, I think I, look, like I, 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 think I see a, a long neck with a head on the end of it, but that just well, yeah, right. my eyes tricked on me a little bit. Yeah. Well, that's that's what it looks like. You, I well, think it's turned saw, in such a way that's kind of unusual too. It's not like your typical yeah. hoax photo. It's well, kind of. The, it's turned away from the camera, I think, a little bit. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of critics of the plesiosaur theory want to make a big deal about the supposed inflexibility of plesiosaur necks, but uh, the actual evidence is not as bad toward that idea as, as people have tried to make it out to be. 
I mean, there yeah. were there were um, there were constraints on moving in the vertical plane, but not enough that this thing could have raised its head up out of the water, you know. And um, I sent right. you a picture it, it, where I now, took an actual plesiosaur skeleton and layered it over the Mansi photo. Yes, and it, it's a yeah. perfect match, in, yeah. in, in my opinion, into the you know untrained eye, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Uh, it looks it looks very compelling to me. And now there was some trepidation, if you will, about maybe the possible nefarious nature of the quest came up about why she was not direct with the location, the exact location of where the photograph yeah. was taken. Uh, well, do you think that was more of a thing where she was just trying to keep it on the down low and protect them? I and that's think what the there. reason she's reluctant to tell is that she doesn't want people messing with these animals. She wants them left okay. alone, and I can respect that. Mm-hmm. And I've been around her enough to know, you know how you can be around people and feel and kind of get a, a general feel about whether they're they're being honest with you or not? Right. I I, I honestly think she's telling the truth, and I think that's why she's not telling well, hearing now, her testimony, related that, I'm... Related to that, Dick Rayner, who's a Loch Ness researcher that I know, did a lot of uh, research <clears throat> based on features in the photograph and thinks that he has found the place where the photograph was taken. And I part of what I was doing last summer was going to the location that he had picked out and doing photographs and, and, and checking it out myself. Well, now, I and really, I, I believe, Sandra. Now, Doreen, was you about to say that you, did you feel like she was being truthful to you just in your Well, just um, from my angle as an investigator, I would say that her testimony was very compelling as she gave some very interesting details about what she saw. Yeah. Even without the photo, she was a really compelling Witness, she was convinced, was more or less, in your mind, that she saw what she thought she saw, whatever that was. She, yeah, she gave some important details that I would have been, as an investigator, I would have been looking for her to give me those kind of details if she right. was telling the truth. Yeah. And I won't say exactly what they were, but she, you know, she spoke about how she felt about what happened, you know, how she was feeling when it happened. And, and I feel like she's truthful also, and, I, and Scott agrees with that too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that, that well, says something. Yeah. Know, anyway, like what I was talking to somebody, you know. Yeah. Not so what much. I was going to say is when I was there last summer investigating this place that Dick Rayner has picked out, before we went up there, I sat down with her and showed her the maps and photographs and all this different stuff, and she says, yeah, he's close. So basically the gist I got from her was that that this is not maybe the exact place, but it's very close to where it actually happened. Okay. And this would be the western shore of North Hero Island, which is an island in the middle of Lake Champlain. Right. So he's warm. He's close. Now, again, we're talking yeah. about a lake that's 126 miles long, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, the last, the last time I was there... I think I covered maybe an 80-mile swath, so I covered a good chunk of the lake. 
you got, around, pretty, you got almost looking of there. One thing that I wanted to do last summer that I didn't get to do that I hope to do this summer coming up is to go investigate where the Bodet video was shot in 2005. Now, I'm That's glad you video. brought that up because that is yeah. my favorite video in the whole world, just about. Mm. Yeah. I've looked at that well, video a lot. Our new favorite. Go ahead. I'll there's tell you what I think. Relatively I'm good, to hear what you got to say about it. There's three relatively good video pieces of evidence for Champ. And that's Sandra Manzi's photograph, the Bodette video, and the Olsen video that was shot in Burlington, Vermont, in 2009. So, yeah. now, look, so that's in the Bodette video, can you set the scene for us a little bit on that? For those that might not be familiar with that, I'm going to go ahead and post that in the chat. The, the Bodette video you're talking about, right? Yeah. All uh, right, yeah, hang on. Uh, I got it right here. Uh, they were at the mouth yeah, uh, of the Off Sable River on the New York side, July 11th, I believe it was when it happened. It was 05, I believe. They were in a fishing boat, and it they noticed this object kind of bobbing out a little ways, and watched it and filmed that, and they couldn't figure out what it was, and then finally, at some point. It got right up next to the side of the boat, and you can see what looks like a head and a neck moving up and down, right off the side of the boat, and then possibly a second object which looks like possibly the edge of a flipper, and it yes. kind of turns to the yeah, left and, and then sinks down, and that's it. And the whole video was it shown on the ABC News clip? Yeah, and all I have access to, of course, is that what aired on ABC. Yeah, me too. I've been trying to to get them to let me uh, do a an advanced study on it, and I'm I'm just waiting to see what happens. Anyway, here's the newspaper article, or no, yeah, okay, this is from the Burlington Free Press, and I'll just read the article. His new champ encounter video turns up debate by Matt Crawford, Free Press staff writer, September 2nd, 2005, Charlotte, Vermont. It's a flat, dead calm summer evening on Lake Champlain, the time of night, when the water surface looks like a giant, gigantic mirror. Right. Vermonters Dick Falter and Pete Bodette, a Falter's 34-year-old stepson, are fishing for salmon just west of the mouth of the Yosemite River on the New York side of the lake. They're in Bodette's boat, a 21-foot Bayliner trophy, and as the two experienced fishermen began putting their lines in the water, they noticed something on the surface out some distance from them. It's Monday night, July 11th, and no other boats are in the area. At first, a falter of a retired Essex attorney thinks he's looking at a floating railroad tie. No, he realizes it's too long. Maybe it's a tree trunk. Then it moves in a serpentine manner, they say, leaving a sizable wake, a series of patterned ripples, like corduroy on the smooth surface. The two fishermen know they are not looking at a railroad tie or a tree trunk, but they don't know what it is. Later, when, when they see it again and capture digital images of it, they know more than before. They know no more than before. In the days following, as they talk to others and show their videos, the question emerges, was it champ? Any unexplained, unique, or unidentified sighting on Lake Champlain, of course, 
brings to the fore the legend of Champ, a mythical Lake Champlain creature that has been subject to debate and speculation for almost 400 years. Some people have photographed what they claim to be Champ, and in 2003, a team of scientists recorded a series of high-frequency sounds similar to those made by marine mammals coming from the lake's depths. But the presence of a large marine animal to Lake Champlain is more folklore than fact. A Falter and Bodette do not claim they saw Champ. We saw something on the lake we've never seen before, Bodette said. Is that what we saw, the same thing other people saw, and they called Champ? Question mark. I don't know. When the pair first noticed something on the lake's surface, Bodette and a Falter thought it was a fish. I said to Dick, just troll over that thing, said Bodette, a Charlotte resident. As a joke, I said, watch the thing take off when we get close to it. Sure enough, we got to about 20 or 30 yards, and it just slowly submerged. Bodette remembers telling a falter, and maybe he dropped a cuss word in there, that's a humongous fish, humongous. The two <laughs> season anglers could not identify what species of fish it might have been, especially when they estimated to be 15 feet long that was breaking the surface where the lake is close to 200 feet deep. They continued to fish for salmon. A half hour later, maybe more, they saw activity on the surface again. This time, a falter piloted the bayliner close enough to Bodette to use his tandem digital camera. Bodette snapped pictures and recorded several short movies. He saved the images of his home, on his home computer, naming the files various versions of Pete's Serpent. The digital recordings clearly showed something of significant size moving just under the surface. It does not appear to be a boat wake or a school of fish or cormorants. In one frame, it almost looks as if the head of an alligator-like animal breaks the surface, the setting sun reflecting off what could be an eye. So there you go. Hmm. Yeah, <clears> but anyway, when I look at that video, I don't know biologists, but I've been on the water a lot like, in a few different places. Like and all, either, and I know what a fish looks like and a snake and most of them yeah. look like That, that looks don't like, look like anything I know. Looks like either the head and neck of a plesiosaur, a giant snake, or a giant eel. Mm-hmm. And either either one of those three would be interesting re- related yeah. to the champ phenomenon. So, right, and, and of course related. Now we had a question in the chat room. Now, if we're talking about a relic extant please before, <clears throat> excuse me, I apologize. We're all three fighting the flu. I all think all three of us speak. <laughs> yeah, three. but uh, <laughs> there are reports at times of. The animals possibly moving on land, and if it was well, yeah. easy to sort of had flippers, would that not be a cumbersome arrangement uh, to well, try to maneuver on land? Some paleontologists believe that that smaller types of plesiosaurs probably had a limited amphibious ability. And hmm. if you've ever seen the uh, BBC program Walking with Dinosaurs, oh yes. yeah. Okay, well, they show a whole series of uh, cryptoclitus plesiosaurs laying on the beach, flopping around. With flippers. Mm. Yeah, oh, yeah. And there's several amphibious reports from Loch Ness and, and a few from Lake Champlain. There's well, in the case some, of a sea turtle or something like that, maybe that would be a similar scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the general idea is that they could flop around probably like a sea turtle. Would they tend to be on land to give birth like a turtle or for other reasons to gain a Well, snack? they know 
from they found in 1987 in Kansas, they found a fossil female plesiosaur with a baby up inside of it. So that's pretty good evidence that they gave live birth as opposed mm, to that's pretty strong evidence yeah. for a live birth yeah. situation. Yeah. So so it's generally it's generally. We go ahead and toss uh, the egg out of the conversation. Yeah. Well. Anyway. Um, Despite the fact that there is evidence that plesiosaurs gave live birth, uh, they also, some paleontologists, they're kind of in the minority opinion, do believe that they were probably slightly amphibious. Hmm. And usually, usually when you get these amphibious reports, they're not very far from the water. They're like maybe feet from the water. Right. Maybe crossing a road or something right next to the water or, you know, they're not very far. I know of one from Lake Champlain where it was actually halfway out in the water, and only the, the, the neck portion was really on the beach. The rest of it was essentially into the shallow water. So so it only extended its neck out of the water, so to speak. The whole body remained in the water. Yeah. Period. Now, you, you saw the Monster Quest episode I was on, right? I mm-hmm. did. Yeah. It's one of my All favorites. All right, well, it was a woman... There was a woman they interviewed named Christine Heber. She yes. had two Allegedly amphibious did. sightings within a space of like a month. Right. She'd never seen it before, never seen it again since. She lived their whole life around the lake. So they run a, a boathouse where they rent rowboats down at the mouth of the Winooski River. The lake Yeah, lake. where is that located at again? On which side? Um, Way up here in the North Avenue in Burlington, Vermont, on the Vermont side of the lake. I see. Uh, Burlington. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, what happened was the first time she heard, this was late at night, she heard the dogs barking. They had dogs down next to the boathouse. And she went out to see what the dogs were barking at, actually looked out the window and saw this dinosaur-looking thing coming out from around the corner next to her boat ramp, and there was a street light, and it went right under the street light. And um, basically looked like a, she described it as looking like a dinosaur. There was a hump, and then a neck standing up, curved up kind of like a swan about six feet high. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she just slowly left her boat ramp going out into the deeper water and didn't make any noise and didn't seem like it was disturbed from the dogs or anything. Just kind of swam out. And then about a month after that, it happened again. It was a smaller animal of a slightly different color. And her mother saw it too. And her brother also saw one of these sightings. And I can't remember which one it was. She called her brother to tell him about it. And he came down. By the time he got there, <clears throat> it was moving out into the darkness, and all he told me he saw was some object that looked like a telephone pole standing straight up out of water moving out into the darkness. Okay. So evidently, in both cases of these sightings that she had, the animal was on land, and they saw it both times leaving the land and going back out into the water. So... Hmm. Both she said was one was green and one was brown, and it was yes, interesting. Yes, exactly. Yes. And this is a case and one was again, smaller than the other one, too. 
Yeah. Basically, walked out there under the streetlight in front of everybody. I mean, this is this right. What was that again? I, I didn't get that. I mean, it was just kind of, it wasn't really trying to take the long way around or anything. It sounded like from watching the show, it just kind of didn't mind yeah. being under the light or anything. It just kind of was doing its own thing. Like yeah, it's done I mean, it many knows, times before. Who knows what it yeah. was doing? You know, they they may come like on land. it was and, doing it long before they ever put the light up or something. You know? you know, there's all this argument about, you know, is there enough fish in these lakes to support these animals. It's possible they could be eating birds, small birds and amphibians and Yeah. Who knows? You know, maybe they would eat waterfowl if a duck or a goose or something. Yeah, well they they found they found evidence of plesiosaurs predating on birds. They found plesiosaur uh, bites on bird bones from the Cretaceous. And they also found a small pterodactyl in the belly of a fossil plesiosaur. Oh. So they know they ate more than just fish. Um, okay. So the fairy and diet comes into play with uh, the sustainability of a population of these animals. Just relying on a fish-only situation would kind of limit you a lot more, but if you did well, yeah, incorporate different things, and, you know, there's even been reports of, you know, livestock getting missing and things like that. So Yeah, well, say one thing about plesiosaurs you have that. to understand is that <clears throat> snakes and mosasaurs could dislocate their jaws to eat prey larger than their mouth. You know how a snake really? would dislocate its jaws and swallow a water buffalo okay. or something like that? I did okay, not know that either. Yeah. Plesiosaurs couldn't do that. They couldn't dislocate their jaw. It was they couldn't. So connected. maybe eating a cow might be pushing it a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe maybe the plesiosaurs, the big-headed ones, probably could have tackled a cow, but but not the small-headed, long-necked ones. They theoretically well, couldn't eat any food bigger than their mouth. Okay. Which that wouldn't rule Another out. Question. That wouldn't rule out small birds and frogs and stuff like that. You know. Right, okay. there's, there's certainly the potential there for a, a lot of different things to come into play in a diet. Uh, someone else in the chat room was wanting to know if uh, what your opinion was on just how many animals would make a viable population. What was like a minimum number? Are we talking 20, 30, 50, 100 animals? How many animals would well, it take to make it work? I would, I mean, you know, this is a, a very rough estimate. Nobody really knows. I'd say 10 to 20 animals. But one thing that has really thrown a monkey wrench in that whole argument is this phenomenon called parthenogenesis. And what this is is a female animal being able to fertilize its own eggs. Self-fertilization. Yes, and have an offspring without a male. This happened Mm. with Komodo dragons at a zoo, I think in Missouri. There's been a few examples just recently in the last few years I remember coming up. Yeah, there's yeah. quite an increase in knowledge in that area lately. It turns out there's more than one or two species that can maybe do that. Absolutely, yeah. There are sharks that do it, um, reptiles. So who's to say that Nessie can't do that or Champ can't do that? We don't know. Sure. I mean, it's kind of special pleading, but it is it is possible. So, so who if knows, you just had you know? a dozen or two of these things, you you got enough to maybe make it work. Probably, yes. I mean, it would be precarious. You've got to think that the smaller the breeding population is, the less genetic diversity that it's going to have. 
Right. And we're talking about if we say these animals can't get in and out to the ocean and are, are isolated in these lakes, you know, whatever genetic um, problems they have have been perpetuated over a period of, say, 10,000 years. Right. So that might get into some problematical things, right. you know, mm-hmm. but we don't know. If, if they if they live in a relatively stable environment, then they probably wouldn't need that much genetic diversity to adapt right. to changes. And so, there again, part of this would also come into play maybe uh, lifespan. How long would one of these yeah. animals have the potential to live? Well, they know sea turtles can live to be 150 years old. Mm, right, so you maybe give them at least that, 100 or 2. Or 150 yeah. years old. So I've read speculation, um, maybe some dinosaurs lived to be 500, 600 years old, you know, so who knows? So we yeah. don't really have a firm grasp on life yeah. man aspect. It's a good um, uh, bit of variance could come into play before, there. Before the show ends, I have a list of the out-of-place plesiosaur fossils that have been found. Can I just read the list so we can kind of you get sure that can, get into right the program? Here. And we'll you take sure but a second here. No, you right. get right here. Okay. Let's see. I was actually going to post uh, something up in the chat room. What do you do? It's always good to do. But, yeah, it's fascinating that all this stuff could point maybe it being that this is a real phenomenon. Now, like you say, a lot of lake monsters don't typically fit the typical pleasures or, uh, you know, morphology or whatever, more like a eel or a misidentified surgeon or a lake in the water sometimes. Here's my list. All right, go ahead. Okay, I'm going to read out the geologic time period and then the places where the fossils, the other place fossils have been found. Okay, the first is the Paleocene, and you got fossils from California, New Zealand, Arkansas, and Argentina, South America. The Eocene, you've got fossils from Saudi Arabia and New Zealand. From the Oligocene, you've got fossils from Alabama. From the Miocene, North Dakota. From the Pliocene, New Jersey. And from the Pleistocene, which would be the Ice Age, you've got Iowa, Germany, and possibly Loch Ness. So, so there you go. Maybe maybe at another right. point I can come back for another episode. Yeah, I can already see you. Yeah. have to have you on detail. again because you only got maybe, you know, 20 minutes <laughs> yeah. here, but there's so much more I want to cover. Yeah, uh, it really is. Is there piece of uh, evidence, Scott, that, that maybe stood out to you uh, more than any other piece? Because there's one that really hits home for you. Of the real the one thing you discovered, just all of it. Of all of it, is it is <laughs> well, it maybe finding those reworked fossils? Is that what really, you know, drives you? Is there well, one piece that makes you go back? You know, the the strength about the reworked fossils idea is that I'm pulling this stuff straight out of the science journals. You know, right? There might be a question about the interpretations that I'm putting on it. But there's yeah. no question about the existence of the evidence itself. Sure. Whether you want to say it's reworked or not, but but, yeah. but every time <laughs> I hear a paleontologist say, "Well, 
there's no way that the Loch Ness Monster could be a plesiosaur because there's no plesiosaur fossils found past 65 million years ago. You know, I want to show them this. Because yeah. obviously there are fossils found past 65 million years ago. There's just a question as to whether they're reworked or not. Right. Right, yep. Yeah. So we may very well be looking at fossil evidence of just what we're talking about. Yes. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, it at least needs to be reexamined by somebody with an open mind that's not going to just ridicule the idea right out of the gate, you know? Right. And it goes I don't back think that's to the whole geology much, you know? and how geology goes hand in hand with the whole paleontology concept. And yeah. some of that even applies over in the, in the modern scenarios where maybe in some cases there are underground rivers or waterways that may or may not connect back and forth between different bodies of water and things like well, that. Yeah, I know. I, I've read I've read serious speculation that maybe some eels migrate through underground rivers from the sea back and forth. Right. There is serious speculation about that, and Bruce in the chat room wanted to bring that up, and I think that's a good point. Geology very much plays into the study of this whole phenomenon. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, I I don't have a problem with skeptics pointing out alternative interpretations of lake monster phenomena, but when these skeptical paleontologists you know, say that, oh, the water's too cold for a reptile. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of evidence, and they know this, that plesiosaurs may have been partially warm-blooded and probably could have survived temperatures like this. In other words, they're not being completely honest. They ought to be able to tell people that, yes, there's evidence that plesiosaurs were partially warm-blooded. There were freshwater plesiosaurs, and there are fossils found past the end of the Cretaceous. It's just there's a question as to whether they're reworked or not. I mean, that's just telling the truth. Which is at very best debatable, but still, yet it's there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, put all the cards on the table. I don't think that's asking too much, is it? Well, it seems to be sometimes, unfortunately, uh, with the <laughs> establishment, so to speak. I mean, they want, you know, they want to lob all these criticisms at, at how uncritical and biased cryptozoologists are, well, I think there's some bias on the other side of the table, too. There sure is. Honestly. Agreed. Very much so. I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, completely uh, be an enemy toward the skeptics, but... You know, I'm just saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, look at this over well, here. Well, the skeptics play a role in kind of keeping us sharp and, well, you yes. know. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I very much <clears throat> admire skepticism up to a point. Right. And reasonable skepticism, I have nothing wrong with that. That's just part of the scientific method. Right. And I have a term of, uh, you know, of type of skepticism, uh, constructive skepticism, yeah. where it's not well, getting in the way of actually finding the truth. There are some skeptics that are categorized as pseudo-skeptics that that yeah. seem to not really be taking an honest look at all the arguments, and right. they're biased in their own right, right. and are, are, are just as... <clears throat> 
just as biased as as the so-called true believers, you know? Right, exactly. I mean, you got you got to think that skeptics are protecting us from from a lot of stuff that is kind of dangerous, you know, like astrology and yeah, <laughs> psychic claims and I mean, I'm not saying I'm not trying to downgrade parapsychology. I mean, I I think right. there probably is some validity to some I understand what you're saying. Yeah, but, you exactly. Know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is categorized as pseudoscience that is pseudoscience. Right. But there are some skeptics that want to take and throw the baby out with the bathwater. In exactly. other words, all anomalies aren't equal. Some anomalies are more scientifically credible than others. Mm-hmm. And to just there blanket, are so many you know, nuances. To blanket, to blanket all, quote, uh, anomalous phenomena with one brush is not right. It's yeah. not fair to the subject. Yeah. That's right. And like you say, if you're not willing to lay all the cards out there and at least be open-minded about it, then that's just not fair. And, and there's nothing wrong with that healthy skepticism, and that's part of what we're all about here. And well, yeah, and one thing you have to remember, objectivity. too. Yeah, one thing you have believe, to remember, too, you know, there, are, there are a lot of scientific ideas that are accepted now. There was a time that they weren't accepted, and at the time that they weren't accepted, there was a lot of <clears throat> a lot of uh, ridiculing of these ideas and resistance of, among the scientific community to accept them, such right. as plate tectonics. You know, that was originally ridiculed. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was a lot of right out. scientific theory. Uh, that's another fine example. That, we that could talk all day about time. things that used yeah. to be ridiculed that. Yeah. Are now yeah, considered yeah, facts. Science yep. is an ever evolving uh, art form. Exactly. exactly. We don't know. We know a bunch, but we don't know everything. So, you can, the, so the, mm-hmm. the best thing to do, the best thing to do is travel a middle road and keep one foot in one side of the aisle and one foot in the other side and try to find a middle road. Right. And try to be as scientific and skeptical as you can without pulling the baby out with a bathwater. Exactly. Know? Yeah. Well, now, that's the only way to get to the truth. On, and that's how we get to the truth. That is correct, all right? Yeah. Yep. And yeah. one thing, Scott, I want to touch on before we run out of time is when you're talking about these descriptions that seem to fit the morphology type of a relic, plesiosaur, it. It's often associated with lake monsters, but we have a long history of so-called sea serpent sightings and that well, type yeah. of thing. And well, what the listeners wanted to know if there was a parallel there with description. Absolutely. Vertically, vertically identical. That's where, I you know, that that's where the, the case, idea... But unfortunately, yeah. I'm not an expert on sea serpents. Oh, I know Sarah Guinness needs to be some... <laughs> Variation. You can look at eyewitness. You can look at eyewitness drawings of long-necked sea serpents, and eyewitness drawings of Chance and the Loch Ness monster, and they're virtually identical. Not two cents with a difference in them, and that comes yeah. back to the idea that plesiosaurs may have survived for millions and millions of years out in the ocean before they ever came in <clears throat> to places like Loch Ness and Lake Champlain. These are the marine ancestors, potentially, of these lake monsters. They're cousins, yes. Hmm. 
Well, it is a fascinating subject, certainly. And yeah, and we, we could, could keep go going forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, well, we are going to be winding it down soon. And, Scott, there was so much more I wanted to ask you about kind of what's going on now with you, man. I know you've been to the lake a few times, and, and, and you're going to keep going back to Lake Champlain, that is, yeah. as long as you can. Uh, yep, what, what's on the horizon for you? What you got going on, personally? Well, uh, one thing I want to do is take all this material that I've come up with about the reworked plesiosaurs and write a scientific paper about it. I may have a hard time getting it into a straight science journal, but I can at least get it into one of the refereed cryptozoology journals. So, right. That would be an amazing that. That. Everybody, Everybody's <laughs> been asking me to write a book, but I yeah. think this is more important than writing a book. It might be in that sense. Yeah. yeah. Which eventually I am going to write a book, but I'm, you know, like I said, I, I, I'm too busy working on this mm-hmm. to sit down and write something. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm busy. Yeah. But Doing I plan, the work. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, we're going to get back to Lake Champlain this summer. Uh, Will, my research partner, has invested in 3D side scan sonar, and we were supposed to do that with a boat last summer. And there were problems with the boat trailer. He was having to drive the boat from Virginia to Vermont, and the boat trailer fell apart on him. Oh, my. So he wasn't able to make it last year, and I was stuck mm. up there by myself. But, I mean, like I said, I, I managed to get around 80, 80 miles of the lake. So um, wow. Yeah, and that's a, a pretty drive, good swap, regardless. Even, mm-hmm. even with logistical, you know, Yeah, well, I, one thing I want to say is... I want to thank my friend Robert Ricky because if he hadn't been willing to drive me these places, I would have, I would have been ha- out there hitchhiking or, or something. But You've done whatever we, you had to do to get up there. We wouldn't want to do yeah. all that. So it helps to have yeah. good friends. I have to, I have to travel a thousand miles. Right. I'm going. I'm in South Florida. You know, it's a long way from South Florida to Vermont. I lived there yeah. for, for uh, seventeen, eighteen years. So you live right I there in the lake. Yeah, oh, yeah. I lived in Vermont for 18 years, right right near Lake Champlain. I was a 30-minute walk from the lake. So, I'm sure you made that walk on a few occasions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, the, only reason, the only reason I'm in Florida is because I met my wife, and she hates the cold, so I wound up moving down here to be with her. Well, I don't blame her. But I'm, well, well yeah, you're a good fellow for doing, doing that. Back. I don't like you know, the cold either. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I haven't quit what I'm doing. Regardless of what a couple of other champ researchers have been telling everybody, I'm still very much in the game. Um, you are very much in the game. Yeah. And absolutely. I'm always curious to know what you have coming on the horizon because I know you're usually one step ahead of the rest of the folks. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And um, Sounds like it, yes. And well, we <clears throat> really, really appreciate you having been on tonight. Like I <clears throat> say, there's so much to cover on the topic. It's hard to contain and it showed us only a couple of hours long. Yeah, uh, well, maybe maybe what we can do in the future is do maybe a three-part series or something, you know, and really go into it. I'm sure that would be just fine with our game if you could yep. manage time. Like you say, we do know that you are a very busy individual. We all have lives on top of all this other stuff we enjoy. So yep. 
Absolutely. Anytime you can fit us in, we'd be proud to have you back on, Scott. Well, anytime. Just let me know. Indeed. And I very much enjoyed it. And thank you for letting me jabber on about plesiosaurs. It's my favorite subject. <laughs> thank you very much, well, Scott. It was nice to meet you. Same here. It was. It was a pleasure for all of us. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to add before I go ahead and close it down, Scott? No, that's pretty much... Well, I think I got most of my main points in. I think you did pretty well, good. You Thank did you. real good, as very, you always do. Very and complicated subject. It is a very complicated subject, and I'm glad you said that. And <laughs> we're not an expert. I'm not an expert in anything. But we all have to have rely on our friends to help us. And I knew right off the bat when I wanted to talk about pleasing stores who I wanted to talk about it with. Yeah. And you are well-respected for your knowledge and your background as a researcher and a forward thinker on the subject. And I think if you mm. could get that paper going and get yep. that done, that would make a huge impact on the community. In Most the long definitely. Run. I so. I, yeah, I think keep we us posted. That What's that? Keep us posted on that. I'd be curious oh, to hear what's going on with that. I will. Most definitely. Sounds well, good. Scott, thank you for joining us. And Doreen, thank you for being such a gracious co-host along with myself. <laughs> and, You're very uh, welcome. Thank you. I'll actually let you talk a little bit. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks a lot, Scott. All right. Well, thanks yep. a lot, Scott. And thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. And, again, We'd like to invite you back in the very near future for more of the similar type of content, and we really appreciate all of you. Have a great night, everyone, and thanks Good for night. joining us.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.